This is a podcast from the Refugee Study Centre. To learn more about our work, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk. Thank you very much. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you all for facing the storm as well to be here tonight. Um, of course, it's very good to be back, uh, especially because it's actually here at the RSC under the critical eyes of uh, Matt Gibney and Alex Betts that I first tested the ideas, which I later developed into an article that has the same title, Three Asylum Paradigms, which was published last year by the, Inter- by the International Journal Minority and Group Rights. And I'm very grateful for this opportunity to present more fully than has been the case so far the findings and conclusions of that study, enriched also by the comments I received on my article, and and of course, even more grateful and pleased to do so to this expert audience. In short, Three Asylum Paradigms is the journey of a refugee lawyer through the jungle of moral philosophy. It is a quest for meaning the deep meaning of concept with which I and many others in the refugee field have become familiar to the point of not paying attention anymore, like refugee or asylum. Of course, this quest is informed, but it's also in many ways imposed by my experience of working with, for, and in any case about refugees for over three decades. This experience has confirmed a few things that I later found in the literature. It has definitely confirmed, and I suppose this is good news, that these familiar words, refugee, asylum, are not neutral descriptive terms. I have been able to witness directly what David Martin once called the evocative power of the word refugee, which he saw as, and I quote, a call to action, an invitation to roll up one's sleeves and to find ways to help. I can confirm that refugees do exist, not only empirically, but that they do exist as a normative category, as a category of people to whom the world owes something and knows that it owes something. Yet, experience has also shown me that the source and contents of this sense of obligation are often blurred, ambiguous, and generally hard to catch. The vast majority of refugees live we know that, in substandard conditions. Certainly where the standard is what lawyers know best, that is the 1951 convention. And this state of affairs does not seem to threaten the legal regime, as one would expect. Those refugees who manage to seek better conditions further away from the crisis area are subjected to new and additional tests. Their refugee condition is constantly questioned whether they move spontaneously or they use official resettlement channels. Despite these very serious constraints, which definitely must make refugees' life pretty miserable, refugee status remains a privileged status. The refugee privilege is very conspicuous. In the rich global north, refugee status is not only a trump on general immigration restrictions, it's often seen as a permanent status. And it should be of such a high quality that it can and must be reserved only for the happy few. It is elitist, in the words that Jim Hathaway once used. 
In the global south, the refugee privilege takes a very different coloring, but it still exists. This is, of course, where most refugee-hosting countries lie, and there refugees are resented because of the privileged attention they get from the international community as compared with the needy local population. So it's really not easy to make sense ethically of these ambivalent, ambiguous, or contradictory attitudes. And if we turn to the legal frameworks that govern a duty to protect refugees, not surprisingly, we see that these frameworks seem equally unable to capture this complex reality. For many, many years, I've been fighting <clears throat> with governments, also inside UNHCR itself, to defend the 1951 Convention as the panacea, as the instrument that can provide a response to all the refugees of the world. Today, I wish, I mean this sincerely, I wish, the convention where the universal answer, the panacea. But I cannot ignore the stubborn resistance which many states continue to oppose to a liberal interpretation of its norms. I cannot ignore the minimal impact that jurisprudential advances on the convention have on the majority of refugees in the global south. This is a reality. I've also grown skeptical about the remedy proposed by some which is, at the other extreme, if you wish, a complete human rights paradigm. Many scholars, lawyers, <clears throat> enthusiastically espouse human rights-based non-refoulement, and so do I, but many espouse it at the risk of eroding the positive connotation which, in my view, must be attached to asylum. And I have actually written, indeed, a fair bit on this. However, as a lawyer, what hurts me the most is not so much complexity or contradiction. It, it is anything that is whimsical, ad hoc, or unpredictable. Somehow I want to find order. I want rules to be identifiable. Therefore, the rational explanation that I seek to complexity, of which I'll try to give you an outline today, cannot be purely descriptive. As a lawyer, I look not only for meaning, but also, and above all, for arguments. And I have a strong intuition that arguments are needed because if we, even if we manage to identify a concept of asylum that is firmly value-based, it will probably remain fragile and needs to be sustained. So, <coughs> where do we start? I told Matt Gibney, who's not here tonight, that I would start by citing him, and so I shall. <laughs> His work has been very influential, indeed, in shaping uh, at least the beginning of my, of my three paradigms uh, work. The question that Matt asked in his book, The Ethics and Politics of Asylum, is how should states act if they are to promote morally defensible responses to the claims of refugees? Now, I guess my question is the same, but with some important nuances. First of all, by his own admission, Matt's work puts the emphasis on the entrance claims of refugees. And in that sense, he's in very good company. Much of the literature and the bulk of jurisprudence on refugees deals indeed with this phenomenon of asylum seeking as the encounter between an individual or a family that shows up at the border of a state on the one hand and on the other hand, the officials in charge of controlling entry. 
Okay? That is, of course, a refugee scenario. It's a very familiar scenario, but <clears throat> it does not exhaust the reality which we describe under the label asylum or refugee. It's true that a large number of states nowadays have procedures for assessing the bona fides of refugee claims made at their border or on their territories, fair enough. But we also affix the refugee label upon persons and groups that are very far away from our borders. We support an international organization, UNHCR, whose delegated powers extend to refugees worldwide. We also, on occasion, proactively reach out to distant refugees and promote their admission into our societies, even if they have not asked for such an intervention. So, somehow we must make sense of that, too. It's not all about entrance claims. The second problem I have, maybe with the question as formulated by Matt and others, is this equation between a claim and a response. How do you respond to refugee claims? Suppose that we already know who the refugees are. But in fact, it's already a political act to define a claim as a refugee claim. So in a way, uh, there's something a bit circular about uh, this equation. Because refugee claims do not exist, actually, independently from state's willingness to hear them as refugee claims. So what we have here is actually a very complex construct. We do a variety of things for refugees, including asylum, and in the process we actually define who is a refugee and what asylum is. What matters, however, and here of course I'm in full agreement with Matthew and other analysts, is that we do all these things out of a sense of commitment and duty, albeit that the legal force of this obligation varies from case to case. So the way I would formulate the questions would be as follows. The first question is, what do we owe refugees, qua refugees, because they are refugees? And indeed, implicit in this question is this other question, why do we define refugees the way we do? And here, we must also address the question of a refugee privilege. What do we owe refugees, qua refugees, that we don't believe we owe to other strangers? And then the second question is, of course, what is the basis for this sense of obligation? And here we must find the moral trigger, if you wish, that connects us to the condition of that other whom we call refugee. And in my view, this search is necessarily informed by an understanding of the self. I've been seduced by a text in which Jürgen Habermas defines an ethical question as one that intervenes, and I quote, where we, as, member, as members of a community, ask who we are and who we would like to be. So the connection that we're looking for between us and the refugees transcends both the subjective suffering and the objective needs of the refugees to focus on the special way in which their suffering and needs resonate within ourselves. To define refugees is actually to say as much about who we are as about who they are. This is my understanding of an ethical search. So these are the questions. They are complicated. But <laughs> what I came to realize and what I propose as a, the subject of discussion tonight is that there cannot be one coherent set of answers to these questions. And that is because in today's world, 
we don't have one concept of refugee or one concept of asylum. We have actually at least three, and I actually cannot think of more than three. Somebody said that we could have been educated by the Jesuits and there everything has to go one, two, three. But in this case, I cannot actually really think about more than three distinct realities. These are what I call paradigms, a paradigm here meaning nothing more than a representation of reality. So here they go. <clears throat> this is the name that I give to the paradigms, but that also describe the content of the duty. Okay? What do we think we owe refugee? Well, admission, rescue, or non-return. Okay? Uh, and then the rest are elements of this chain, if you wish, that connects a situation or a circumstance that we call a refugee or an asylum situation to a response through the lens or through the mediation, if you wish, of a moral trigger or of a moral impulse. And at the end, at the far end there to the right, I'm trying to see which kind of legal framework can actually encapsulate this uh, uh, sense of ethical obligation, though I have to say the fit with law is not always perfect, but I'll come to that in a minute. Okay, so some very general observation about these uh, uh, paradigms. First of all, they're not alternative models. Okay? All of them coexist, not only in the world, very often they coexist in the practice of a particular state or a particular society. Okay? Second, some overlap is of course possible. And I guess, especially non-return, I think it's pretty obvious to all, even before hearing more from me, that there's an element of non-return also in the other paradigms. But there are also very good reasons, and I hope we'll get there, to treat non-return uh, as a distinct paradigm. But some overlap there is. Finally, I'm not suggesting any order of moral priority between these three models. I can only suggest that as moral impulses go, empathy is stronger than compassion, and both are stronger than self-righteousness. But it's only an intuition. Remember, I'm not an ethicist at all. Now, in the short time available for this presentation, I cannot really describe in depth all the three paradigms and their implications. So what I propose to do is to take you rather quickly through the first which I've already presented on at least one occasion here, but of course not to uh, all of you here, uh, and time permitting also the third paradigms, and I trust that more can be said during the Q&A session as well. Uh, but I would like to spend a bit more time on the rescue, which is probably the most fragile and the least complete, so to speak, of the three, and you will understand why. Let's start, though, by admission. I must say that since this seminar is located uh, uh, within a sort of human rights uh, 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 program, I did consider starting with the third one, but <clears throat> I decided that that wouldn't really work. I think it made sense to start with admission, because that's the one not only on which there is most literature, but also, I think, the one uh, that comes most naturally to mind, at least in uh, Western liberal democracies when we talk about refugees and asylum. There's little doubt, I hope, at least among us, that one paradigm of asylum has got admission and inclusion into a new community at its core. Asylum is a home, 
it's the new home which refugees long for. My take on the ethical force of this duty of inclusion is not very different from that of, among others, again, Matt Gibney, but also Greg O'Neill, Jim Hathaway, others. It relies significantly on the work of Michael Watzer and his vision of spheres of justice, to which you must, with which you must be familiar. That is, on a political theory that puts a premium on the concept of community and affinity. In the context of immigration and admission, the concept of affinity, as developed by uh, Michael Bolzer, implies, for example, that priority for immigration should be given to relatives okay, of current citizens or to displaced ethnic nationals, to people with whom we have this sort of affinity. Now, how about refugees? Walzer does admit one form of affinity with refugees. That is, if our own actions have helped turn them into refugees. He says, the injury we have done them makes for an affinity between us. Besides this, he actually sees that, and I quote again, we can also be bound to help and here it means to admit men and women persecuted or oppressed by someone else if they are persecuted or oppressed because they are like us he actually goes as far as to suggest that perhaps every victim of authoritarianism and bigotry is the moral comrade of a liberal citizen and he said that's the argument that I would like to make but then he doesn't make it Surprisingly, he stops there because he said that would actually press affinity too hard. I would agree with Walter that that would press affinity too hard if we had only one paradigm to describe, if it was all about admission. But it's not the case. I believe that affinity cannot be pressed too hard to justify the admission of refugees into the kind of political communities that constitute Michael Walter's universe. I actually have deep sympathy for the view that affinity matters to refugee admission and I'm trying in my article to make the case for a reading of the 1951 convention in particular that bear this view out to the fullest. Of course affinity cannot be defined chiefly and certainly not only by reference to ethnicity or religion for example because there we fall of course into the trap of essentialism. There can be and there has been historically uh, uh, an important weight of ideological affinity that uh, had a bearing on the admission of refugees. We know that. Ideological allies have often been and will continue to be strong candidates for admission as refugees. But this does not reflect the most positive aspect of the host community. So, of course, we have to, to be aware uh, of these uh, caveats, of these limitations. However, I think that we can take on board these reservations, these questions, and still conceive of the refugee as what I call a not-so-alien. Somebody who is less of a stranger because he is more like us. And my argument is that the 51 Convention definition posits the refugee precisely as that. And it does so through the concept, which of course is central to that definition, which is a concept of persecution. Because what is persecution? Put simply, persecution is <coughs> a violent form of discrimination. Okay? People are persecuted because they are something. 
So there, it, there's a very strong element, of course, of discrimination. It supposes the use of coercion towards the suppression of difference. Now, our repugnance vis-à-vis -vis persecution is deep. Why is it so? I would submit it is because we value diversity, we value the free expression of difference, and we resent violence, especially where it threatens what we value the most. So it's easy to see how these feelings make, to use Walser's terms, for an affinity between us and the refugee fleeing persecution. If we regard the ability to enjoy difference peacefully as a critical element of our communitarian identity, we are willing to admit into our community those foreigners who are determined to exercise their right to be different, notwithstanding the threat of violent response. So this, in my view, is actually how the 1951 Convention, without changing a word in it, vindicates actually the, the admission paradigm through the concept of affinity and identification. <clears throat> we still have to deal with a number of ethical questions. Does this make this definition partial? Yes. Does it make it elitist? As Jim Attaway once asked, the honest answer is possibly. However, I would like to argue that this version of affinity, which centers on the rejection of discrimination and on the celebration of diversity, contributes, in fact, to affirming a cosmopolitan ideal something which a narrow conception of ethnic or ideological kinship, of course, cannot achieve. <clears throat> so, in a way, within this paradigm, partialist as it may sound, the refugee symbolizes openness rather than closure. Let me leave it at that on this one. We can come back to that. In my article, I ask another, I think, <clears throat> difficult question, which is, shall we one day see the emergence of a universal not-so-alien? Is it actually possible to imagine the perfect citizen of the world that would be the moral comrade of everybody and therefore would have access to asylum anywhere? We are obviously very far from that reality, but I think there is some of that potential, certainly in the 51 Convention. On the other end, we may be forced to admit that this paradigm, the affinity paradigm, speaks to values that may be too liberal or may be just too Western for many states, including many convention signatories. I don't know, and in fact we won't know, unless the question is raised within a multilateral dialogue that is itself open and tolerant. Meanwhile, we have no option but to try and make sense of a status quo that is significantly removed from those lofty ambitions of a universal comrade. As a matter of fact, what we observe is a, a significant proportion of the world's refugee population falls outside the admission paradigm of asylum. Large number of refugees do not feel welcome where they are. Yet, no alternative community is claiming them as moral comrades. Those refugees belong nowhere. Their claims for membership remain unheeded. Nonetheless, we call them refugees, which implies that we owe them some form of recognition and relief. So there is clearly at least one other asylum paradigm at work in the world. And that takes me to the rescue paradigm. <coughs> Before I come to this, let me just <coughs> make it very clear that this paradigm purports to capture 
the following reality toward people whom we call refugees, okay, but it's there actually, we feel a moral duty to act in a certain way, absent or prior to any reflection on the place that they may physically or symbolically occupy within our community. So that's something which is detached from an admission paradigm, either temporarily or maybe even durably. An intuitive way of theorizing this reality is to posit the existence of the coexistence of two duties. There would be a positive duty, which would be a duty to admit certain strangers into our homes, and a negative one, which would be not to return anyone to a life-threatening situation. Okay? I would like to submit that this dichotomy is too simple to be true. Somewhere in between these two paradigms, there is room for a set of moral duties and corresponding action that are positive. It's not just about non-return, but it's not about full admission. Okay? So it is really somewhere in between. And I think that the representation of refugee, which underpins, if you wish, this paradigm, is the image of a refugee as a victim of disaster, of refugees as people in distress. And it is actually, statistically, the dominant refugee image in the world today. I haven't done a full survey, <laughs> but I prepare to assume that if we do, and if you ask people, the men on the street, everywhere in the world, who refugees are, the word victim will come, and the word disaster will follow. And in fact, it's not, it's, it is correct <laughs> to say that, indeed, uh, <coughs> this is a, a true representation of the refugee, of refugee movements and therefore refugee responses as well in today's world, since, with very few exceptions, we know, every new refugee situation is born as an emergency, if we look at it at the global level. And what is an emergency? And I take the definition from UNHCR's emergency handbook. It's a situation in which the life or well-being of refugees will be threatened unless immediate and appropriate action is taken. That immediate and appropriate action is very often removed from a full admission paradigm. And this is what I call rescue, and I will explain why in a minute. But in the world today, refugees are seen very largely treated as victims of disaster and people in distress. And the practice of states in responding, whether individually or collectively, to refugee emergency is actually interesting to uh, scrutinize because it reveals a number of features that, of course, that are common to disaster response in general. Okay? For example, the imperative of speed. Okay? So you don't necessarily think twice. Action is Im needed immediately. The absolute priority on saving lives. I mean, this is, you know... But what is interesting is that this disaster or this crisis discourse, which, of course, has emerged as the mantra of humanitarian action nowadays within and beyond the United Nations, it has the effect of distorting a couple of concepts typically associated with asylum. And I take a few examples. In a refugee emergency, the border represents the critical line between danger and safety, often. Not always, not always, but 
Certainly, this is why refugee uh, 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 relief uh, uh, exists almost as a science. It's because there is an assumption that indeed the border will provide some safety. So this is the border is actually the line, and the border may fluctuate and and, and move back as per uh, Andrew Shachnov's uh, famous "Who's a refugee?" move far in, inside the country as long as the international community can have access there because the, the border that matters is a border between danger and safety. It's no longer this border that represents the place where sovereignties meet, where migration control is exercised. By the same token, the urgency of finding a safe haven for people in distress relegates questions of affinity, identity, membership the ones we've discussed in the previous paradigm, it relegates that to the back of the helpers' minds. So there's some sort of a temporary bracketing of migration concepts and migration concerns. And what I would like really to uh, uh, spend a few minutes on is that my sense, and again, that's my experience actually, is that this temporary bracketing, if you wish, this distortion of concepts that make for a distinct paradigm, they affect both the distant helpers and the proximate helpers. And that is not always obvious. Let's take an example. Let's imagine, and that's not too hard to imagine, a fresh influx of Somalis into Ethiopia. Let's say that's the example I use in my article. This situation is likely to be read in refugee terms. Okay? That will be a refugee influx. It will be read in refugee terms, both near and far away from the crisis. Yeah? So, let's take the citizens of Sweden and the citizens of Ethiopia. Okay? It may well be that the citizens of Sweden or the UK share with the citizens of Ethiopia a sense of moral duty to respond positively to the Somali's call for help. Okay? In fact, that's, that's what happens in most refugee emergencies. Okay? Clearly, the impending flow of refugees into Ethiopia does not, at least at this stage, raise any concern regarding their admission into Sweden. What I think is less obvious, but is probably worth reflecting upon, is that the same influx may also not actually raise issues of admission for the citizens of Ethiopia. There is an assumption that the countries that happen to receive refugees because of the happenstance of being their neighbors do actually open their territory and admit these people. The practice, unfortunately, is actually quite different. And I think it would be very interesting to study the sense of obligation that binds neighbor, neighboring countries. I think that the citizens of Ethiopia, in my example, do not necessarily regard their positive actions, which include allowing the refugees to enter the territory indeed, I don't think that they necessarily see that as a gesture of inclusion into their political community. And of course, the example of that, the demonstration of that, is the refugee camp. In all likelihood, those Somalis will end up in a refugee camp. And why is the refugee camp such an enduring feature of humanitarian response? It is in large part because it conjures up the fictional image of a no-man's land. It's an extraterritorial enclave. It's not, we know, but that is the fiction. It's immune from political membership debates. So in sum, the moral principle at play in refugee emergencies, both near and far away, it operates where affinity is not clear or strong enough to mandate 
membership. The same Michael Walter refers to the possibility of this, the existence of such an ethical principle, and he calls it the principle of mutual aid or good Samaritanism. Oh boy. Oh anyway, so I cannot pronounce it, so I don't use it. But, but in my view, it's not just that. I think that the word rescue describes more precisely than mutual aid the kind of relief that, in my example, the Swedes or the Ethiopians feel that they owe to the fleeing Somalis. <clears throat> so I use the phrase duty to rescue to express the morally compelling character of this course of action. And of course, one advantage of this terminology for somebody who wants to, who's trying to understand better what it may cover, is that the duty to rescue is actually well established, not only in customary law, but also in normative and applied ethics. So at least I knew where to go for my readings. So how is the duty to rescue generally described in ethics and in law? going very quickly through, of course, a very, very dense uh, topic. Rawls, in his theory of justice, talks about the duty of helping another when he is in need or jeopardy. He sees that as a natural duty that holds between persons, irrespective of their institutional relationship, which indeed is interesting. He also, he says that he cannot imagine a society in which people would have no desire to act on such a duty. Because he said if such a society existed, that would express an indifference, if not a disdain for human beings, that would make a sense of our own worth impossible. I agree with that. However, there is, I would suggest, some ambivalence in our compulsion to help the stranger in need. Rawls says we cannot possibly be indifferent. Sure, we cannot possibly be indifferent. But not being indifferent to the distress of the distant refugee does not amount to abolishing all difference between us. While we feel compelled to help the unfortunate, we surely do not want to be identified with them. In fact, we are secretly happy that their misfortune has spared us. This feeling of happiness is not pure, we know that. We can see the injustice of the situation. The aid that we indirectly provide to the distant starving is actually there to reduce our guilt. But it does not abolish the distance that chance has put between us. Hannah Arendt, as you know, has developed this theme quite forcefully in her critic of pity. Okay? And pity, I think, is indeed what often drives us towards victims. Pity, she wrote, she wrote uh, Arendt, she said, it's not stricken in the flesh. It keeps its sentimental distance. Okay? And it is, by the way, on this account that it can reach out to the multitude and therefore enter the marketplace, which is interesting. According to Arendt, if we follow the same sort of uh, uh, terminology, it would be compassion, that is the capacity of suffering with others, which would be capable of turning the pitier, the spectator of misery, into an actor. 
it would seem in that sense that compassion might be, and that's why I put it in my diagram, might be the moral engine driving refugee rescue in this emergency paradigm. What is intriguing, however, if we want to follow Anna Arendt all the way, is that she writes that, in her view, compassion may be may not be touched off by the sufferings of a whole class or people. She says, pity is something that can apply to large groups. You cannot have compassion for a full class or people. And yet, in a way, this is what the refugee rescue paradigm would require. <clears throat> okay, now, if we look at the way that the duty to rescue is generally described, aside from the fact that, that it does not abolish this moral distance, I think that's a very important point. There are certain elements that come in many uh, formulations that I've seen in mostly American, I have to say, literature on the duty to rescue. Let me just give you one of uh, a description uh, from Alan Gewirth. He says, whenever some person knows that unless he acts in certain ways, other persons will suffer basic harms, and he's proximately able to act in these ways with no comparable cost to himself, it is his moral duty to act to prevent these arms. You can see all the caveats that are there. It's far from absolute, right? Uh, <clears throat> there are three basic difficulties with applying, if you wish, this, uh, 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 this duty to rescue, whether it is an individual duty or a collective duty. Of course, when we deal with refugee emergencies, we are mostly interested in the collective version of the duty to rescue. But we can see where the rubs are. One is on the scope of protective right. This is the basic arms. Okay? So unless you act in certain ways, other persons will suffer basic arms. So it seems that we have... We have no duty to intervene to prevent bad outcomes in general, but only to prevent certain harm that interfere with other people's right to basic well-being. That's another formulation, which, by the way, is something that we also know in refugee literature. The reference to the basic well-being is also part of the uh, definition of a refugee emergency that I read out to you five minutes ago. So, and we know, of course, that in disaster response, the chief criterion for prioritizing interventions for assisting this individual or this family before or in lieu of that one is the urgency of need and the right to life will always be the chief protected interest. This more absolute priority on saving lives uh, is of course morally unassailable, but the real difficulty lies both in ethics generally and in applying the model to refugee emergencies in defining the scope of a right to basic well-being being the preservation of life itself. What exactly are, what, what is the scope uh, uh, of the rights uh, that, and of the interest that we seek to preserve through rescue beyond saving lives? In the refugee domain I think this is really critically important. The second, the second rub is about this criteria that the person, the helper, must be proximately able to help. And of course, that is the reference to the Good Samaritan. Okay? Proximately able to act. I'm there. I see the stranger. Gosh, what should I do? So <clears throat> it looks like, because of this proximately able to act, that distance does matter morally to the duty to rescue. 
Okay? The, du the duty to rescue would appear to be contingent in that it relates to emergencies, and I'm quoting another uh, uh, author here, Patricia Smith, it relates only to emergencies that confront an agent with an unaddressed need over which the agent has control and the victim does not. It confronts the agent. However, confrontation, direct contact, is not an absolute requirement. It's acknowledged that we have moral duties towards distant strangers too, not just refugees. In this case, however, the most intriguing question becomes one of moral determinacy. That is, whether a moral connection can be established between a particular rescuer and a particular victim. Then the question becomes, why me? Why not my neighbor? Okay? And if we go back to my example of the Somalis in, in Ethiopia, I think we can say that the citizens of Sweden share with the citizens of Ethiopia a moral duty to meet the refugees' need for rescue. They, I think they see, they see that, they sense, they, they share that duty because refugees as a category of people of concern to the international community command a joint response. The, the, the label itself signifies a shared responsibility to act. However, in practice, one must admit that while the duties share, its scope varies as a function of distance. There is an inescapable territorial character of the response, and that puts a more immediate, and many would argue a more onerous responsibility upon the agent that is more proximate, that is neighboring states and neighboring communities. So the collective duty to rescue refugees is no more determinate for being shared. Rather, indeterminacy shifts from the question who has a duty to rescue to what is the scope of my particular duty. Okay? So proximity to the crisis de facto affects the scope of the duty, and one is left to wonder whether or to what extent this circumstance is morally relevant. And then we have the comparable cost condition. So yes, we have to help the distant stranger only if it, has, if it is at no comparable cost to oneself. Well, here, where collective action to rescue is the order of the day, we see that we have actually, for states, conflict of rights that arise at two dimensions, both within and among states. Okay? States that are involved in the rescue, whether they're close or far, they're involved in the rescue, they must weigh the duties they owe to the distant strangers against their paramount duty vis-à-vis -vis their own citizens. Clearly. Okay? Their first duty is probably not to endanger the basic well-being of their citizens. That, that's one element of balance. At the same time, the states involved in the rescue subject themselves to a scrutiny of their contribution to the rescue effort measured against the contribution of other states. That is the external dimension. Okay? So, Arguably, the duty to rescue is subject to a condition of fairness. And another author, Liam Murphy, says we should do our fair share, something which another Gibney, Mark Gibney, also uses uh, in the refugee context. We should do our fair share, which can amount to a great sacrifice in certain circumstances. What we cannot be required to do is other people's shares as well as our own. Fair enough, probably, but what amounts to fair burden-sharing in refugee emergencies is, as we know, an unresolved question. And distant aid donors are very likely to measure fairness rather differently from those frontline states that provide territorial space for rescue. So we have here 
a duty which is imperfect and indeterminate, which means it just needs to be worked on. Now, if you look at international law that also knows uh, 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 several modalities, I suppose, of the duty to rescue, not surprisingly, we will see the very same dilemmas that we have seen in applied ethics showing through also in law. International law also finds it difficult to circumscribe the duty. At the same time, there is evidence both of a solid foundation of the duty to rescue in international custom and also of a strong potential for creative doctrinal and jurisprudential, jurisprudential development of the norm. I start my legal analysis here with an area in which rescue is actually uh, 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 explicitly mentioned, which is the regime of rescue at sea, okay? the rescue of people in distress at sea. My contention is that the paradigm of refugee rescue in, in emergencies derives actually its moral and legal force from the very same principles of humanity that underpin the international legal regime of rescue at sea. And therefore, some positive developments in the latter, in the, the law of rescue at sea, allow for some hope that the weaker aspects of the duty to rescue refugees can also be gradually strengthened. And the common foundation is, of course, the concept of distress. But of particular interest, I would say, are recent amendments to the law of the sea that signal a determination to move cautiously beyond the regulation of rescue per se and towards a comprehensive treatment of rescue through time which is basically what refugees need. And we see that in the law of safety at sea. Attention to the consequences of rescue at sea, including primarily disembarkation, okay, which is always complicated. This is now gradually integrated into the legal regime, building, of course, upon the rock-solid obligation to save lives. There is now, in the law of safety at sea, safety of life at sea, there is the notion of delivery to a place of safety, which has become also a duty, not just to rescue, but to deliver to a place of safety. The ship in itself is, of course, not necessarily, and certainly not for long, a place of safety. And that notion is an interesting link in this continuum, and one that we believe would be especially relevant to a broader duty to rescue refugees, qua refugees, not necessarily ref refugees at sea. Under the law of safety at sea, as amended recently, a place of safety is, I quote, a location where rescue operations are considered to be terminate and where, one, the survivor's safety or life is no longer threatened, two, basic human needs such as food, shelter, medical needs can be met, and three, transportation arrangements can be made for the survivors next to the survivor's next or final destination. Okay? This applies to rescue at sea, but we can take from there some cues to the universe of refugee emergencies. For example, it suggests that rejection of, at the border okay, is not the only risk which international law seeks to keep at bay in refugee rescue. Beyond the safe crossing of the border, the duty to rescue refugees will not be fulfilled satisfactorily until unless safety in a broader sense is available to the refugees. 
And not only must basic human needs be met in the safe haven, the survivors must also have access to what in refugee law we would call durable solutions. That would be the link with this transport to a final destination for the boat people. So there is something that we can work on there. And it's not far-fetched because there is, of course, already now an overlap between the law of rescue at sea and refugee law because many asylum seekers uh, are in distress at sea. So we can, we can try to build on that. That said, the rescue at sea framework need not be an exclusive or even a preponderant model. At least one alternative and quite compatible route has been mapped through the pioneering work of Guy Goodwin-Gill on temporary refuge a concept that has been further explored by Deborah Perlius, John Fitzpatrick Hartman. But Guy, in particular, <laughs> explicitly trace, traces the norm of temporary refuge to, and I quote, principles with an older history. He notes that the particular protection afforded by the 1951 Convention has long been accompanied by standards of reception and assistance founded upon more generalized conceptions of need or distress. And he argues that the essentially moral obligation to assist refugees and to provide them with refuge or safe haven has, over time, and in certain contexts, developed into a legal obligation. Where, and Guy knows this, where I start, slightly differing with his old writings, is that, unfortunately, in my view, he designates non-refoulement as the expression of this fundamental legal obligation. And as I said when I introduced this paradigm, I'm convinced that this dichotomy between one positive duty and one negative duty is too simple to be true. What we need to identify and then solidify is a set of positive duties, not just negative duties, but positive duties and corresponding positive actions based on the representation of refugees as people in distress. Guy is here and he knows that I and many other disciples are looking to him for a compelling articulation of a coherent and fair regime of rescue through time. Now, this is a, a complex task. Let me just remind you of Anna Arendt's conviction that compassion is incapable of establishing lasting institutions. Yet, this is actually what we are set to belie and challenge. But that regime of a positive regime uh, of rescue of refugees through time is, in my view, absolutely indispensable because it will not be compensated either by an expansion of the admission paradigm or an expansion of the non-return paradigm. In my paper, I've tried to identify a few other areas for policy change, if you wish things to do, like, for example, creating an, a new legal regime. Um, I call them angles of attack uh, on the problem, but, of course, the attack here is not meant to destroy, it's meant to build. For example, I recommend, and, of course, all this will sound very lofty, but uh, we have to give it some concrete contents. I mentioned this question of distance, and I think it is a very serious blockage in uh, in our ethical relationship to refugees and to victims in general, especially the distant victims. And I believe, frankly, that states, if they're serious about their participation in the international regime, 
as a matter of policy, they should strive to reduce rather than increase the moral distance between their citizens and those refugees who run away from life-threatening violence in faraway places. And I believe this requires a systematic effort of understanding what's happening out there in the world, followed by positive communication. And that's clearly not taking place at the moment. The political conflicts and other situations of violence that generate contemporary refugee flows are, by and large, incomprehensible to the public, even to the public of the most advanced democracies. The media don't help. This lack of understanding precludes any form of identification with the refugees, and it leaves this very tenuous link of humanitarian compassion alone in the fight, a losing fight, against indifference. So, to make good of their international commitment, I believe governments have a positive duty to inform the citizenry about the causes and impacts of refugee flows far or near. A fortiori, they must refrain from muting or ignoring public compassion where it flourishes spontaneously. And this is an important point. As Andrew Shaknov once wrote, the extent to which citizens find asylum morally compelling is often underestimated by their governors. And one need not look far back or far away for a validation of this statement. Remember, we'll see what Syria gives, but remember how the former Yugoslavia was descending into violent chaos, Western European governments went out of their way to deny convention refugee status to the victims of ethnic cleansing. While the citizens of the same countries, moved by genuine compassion and a sense of affinity indeed, were willing to open their homes, very literally, to these victims. That was a sad moment, and we should not wish to repeat it. Then, within the comprehensive concept of rescue through time, which I'm trying to outline, clearly something must be done about this enduring symbol of temporary refuge, the refugee camp. I don't think camps will disappear. But we simply cannot accept that camps should be more akin to hell than home, as though we had no responsibility for this state of affairs. There are things in the literature that I have found particularly shocking, even from people whose work I generally respect. Karenz, at some point, has a suggestion that while life in a refugee camp is miserable under the best of circumstances, his words, we still have a choice between leaving the refugee in camps or admission. I object to that. I object even more vigorously to the cynical implications of David Martin's argument, according to which, and I quote, the very privations and uncertainties that prevail in camps provide an important guarantee of the refugee bona fides of the inhabitants of the camp. So, so such a reasoning sounds like, of course, an invitation to keep camp conditions miserable, as though this were for the refugees' own good. So I will charitably assume that this apology of enforced misery was meant to provoke and not to convince. At least it had the merit of being said and put over the table. More insidious and equally devastating is a silent acquiescence that shrouds the unacceptable conditions in which refugees are forced to live for extended periods of time on our watch. Some of you may be familiar with this 
recent, still recent case of Sufi and Elmi decided by the European Court of Human Rights, which was about return to Somalia. Most people have celebrated Sufyan Elmi as being a very, a very positive uh, jurisprudential development, and of course it is in many respects, but there are things that people, including in UNHCR, I have to say, haven't picked, and yet are quite shocking. Not, not the, the reasoning is shocking, but the reality describes. In Sufyan Elmi, the court, Strasbourg, found that as alternatives to facing life-threatening violence in Mogadishu, okay, refugee camps in Kenya are no better than camps for internally displaced people inside the area of armed conflict. It actually puts in the same sentence that IDP camps in Somalia and refugee camps in Kenya are equally miserable, and in fact the conditions in both violate Article 3, uh, uh, would violate Article 3 if that was in Europe, meaning it is inhuman and degrading. Now. I don't know why Strasbourg uh, actually made this uh, uh, amalgamation, if you wish, of refugee camps and IDP camps. In fact, nobody was asking them to do that, interestingly. But they've done it. And, of course, the necessary implication of that decision is that if refugee camps in Kenya are not a safe alternative for returnees, well, they're also not a decent option for those who flee now for the first time. Okay? So what... Strasbourg has said is that the rescue that we provide in Kenya is inhuman and degrading. So it's no rescue at all. I wonder whether we can honestly live with that. Last but not least on this list of policy recommendations, and of course that probably is the most difficult of, of all, our wealthy societies must address the concerns of frontline states in the developing world. Because those states, let's just look at our paradigms again, those states do not enjoy the luxury of controlling the numbers. Not even the quality of affinity of those refugees who arrive on their territory, and yet they rescue them on our collective behalf. A coincidence of affinity in the frontline state okay, and compassion from distant states would of course be the sort of ideal scenario. Okay? It may occur, but it's probably rare, and in any case, it will be accidental. And the worrying reality is that we, and here when I say we, it's we academics, we students, but also policymakers, we in the West, in the North, we don't know, at least I don't know, despite 30 years of working with UNHCR, what asylum truly means for most of the refugee hosting states. We make a very large number of assumptions about how they feel about refugees, ethically. Is the refugee label, which in my example, Ethiopia would affix upon a group of Somali that enter, is it any more, anything more than a cry for help to the international community? Ari Zolberg suggested that at some point by saying the, the, the expanded refugee definition criteria in the OAU convention are a collective claim by African states in regard to the international community. It's a cry for help. Is it more than that? I wish I could affirm that it is more than that. I wish I were able to say what it is, but I, I don't know. Because regrettably, the voice of the global south is hardly heard in the ethical, political debates that feed articles such as mine. So I think that to help this voice come through, 
to give it the place it deserves in a multilateral dialogue centered on the values and not just on interests would appear to be a modest but indispensable step forward in our search for ethical asylum policies. Who? Have I got five minutes for non-return? Yeah? Or are you completely exhausted? I am? No, 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 it's not true. Um, it's a bit heavy, I agree. Okay, so, this one, fair enough, can be improved. This one needs to be improved considerably, but needs to be worked on because it's, it's, it, it exists there. Uh, we cannot just wish it out, wish it away. Then, non-return then appears here as something very, very subsidiary, if you wish. <laughs> uh, almost like an afterthought. Why would it be only the third uh, paradigm? Because we all believe, we actually know, that non-return is an essential part of any refugee paradigm. You cannot have safe asylum if you are allowed to return people to persecution or to a disaster. Fair enough. That's understood. That's understood, and of course that is uh, beyond dispute. However, I still believe that non-return as such deserves to be treated separately. There are good reasons to present it as a distinct paradigm. And chief among these reasons is this fact that we know that over the past two decades or so, a human rights-based duty of non-refoulement has actually become a major expression of asylum. And interestingly, it is a notion of asylum from which the word refugee is absent. In fact, as we shall see in a minute, in the case of complementary or subsidiary protection, the people are actually defined as not being refugees in the first place, which means not being conventional refugees, but it actually means they're not refugees. But asylum is still being used Asylum has been used even by the, the, the same European court to actually explain the notion of subsidiary protection to people who have been excluded from the 1951 convention because they're criminals. Okay? So you can still give them asylum. So asylum is not only for refugees. I have disputed in other writings some abuse of the word asylum. I don't think that the entire asylum jurisprudence of Strasbourg is actually about asylum as I understand it, but that's a larger debate. But certainly, it is a paradigm. And if you ask people today, what is asylum? I think that this sort of action, this sort of obligation to not to return certain people who are not, at least in the traditional sense, refugees, would also surface. And therefore, we have to accept it, we have to deal with it. We have to develop it. We have to make sure that it exists and that it fills the gaps that it's supposed to fill. So, I'm talking here about what is now known as complementary protection, right? So, uh, which, as uh, uh, Guy Gunungil and Jane McKenna have put it in their book, it's a shorthand term today for the widened scope of non-refoulement under international law. So... But non-refoulement is central to central. It is actually the origin, the basis of complementary protection. Because the beneficiaries of complementary protection, they share three essential features in all the regimes that exist in the world. First, they're not conventional refugees. Okay? Either because they don't meet the inclusion criteria or they fall under one of the exclusion criteria. Okay? Second, they are present. They're not the distant stranger. They are present on the territory or otherwise subject to the jurisdiction, at least, of the state granting the requested protection. Third, 
they face deportation from that state under the normal operation of its immigration law. So it's actually a defense against deportation. Uh, uh, therefore representing very much a negative obligation, an obligation not to return. And these last two features, they're present and they face deportation, they situate complementary protection squarely outside an admission paradigm. It's a completely different paradigm. Whereas the 51 convention-based form of asylum denotes a positive inclination to protect, complementary protection flows from a negative obligation. And this radically distinct point of departure suggests that even though complementary protection also denotes a status, that is a form of asylum, indeed, the moral impulse behind it is different. And it should be teased out independently from the classic refugee paradigm. And here, I think it's probably the most difficult one to identify. Because we generally accept, we generally accept, I think, that those aliens who are not recognized as refugees may be deported. So what makes us feel a duty not to refool or to return someone who is not a refugee, which is what complementary protection is all about? In my article, I decide to consider the most extreme cases to see whether we can, uh, 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 that can help us find some light. And of course, the most difficult cases, the, most, the trickier cases, not just legally, but also ethically, are the case of people who are indeed excludable from the convention protection. The case of serious criminals, the case of terrorists, okay? whose continued presence on the territory is perceived as a national security risk, a danger to the community. And yet, they are actually protected, for example, by the prohibition uh, uh, to return, of return to torture or cruel, inhuman, degrading treatment. And I, I, I refer there to this pretty famous uh, decision of 96 on the case of Shahal before the European Court of Human Rights, uh, in which the, the court found by 12 votes to 7 that the deportation of Mr. Shahal, who was a Sikh separatist from India, so that his deportation to India will infringe, indeed, upon the prohibition of torture in human or degrading treatment. That for the UK, Shahal was in the UK, right? Yes. Uh, Mr. Shahal was a serious security risk. Certainly, uh, not just the authorities of the UK, but I guess many people, many members of the public in the UK would have preferred to see Mr. Shahal disappear from the UK. But he could not be sent back uh, to India because that would have exposed him to a real risk of torture. Now, Greg O'Neill refers to this case in his book on EU asylum law, and he says what exactly happened in the minds of the judges there? What, what was their message? Okay, we know that they applied a, a particular provision, but you know, what is the ethical force of this? And he gives, and he's not the only one, to give a, uh, a universalist reading by, make, by reference to the universal protection and the shared responsibility for protecting human rights in the world. He says, the global realization of human rights must take precedence over the interest of a particular community or state population. So if one state fails, in this case, India would fail because India still tortures, or at least still tortured in 96. Okay. <laughs> Another one will pick up its protection obligation because, he said, states are not only singularly but also collectively the guarantors of the implementation of human rights instrument. You know this discourse. Again, I accept the discourse. But I doubt that if you had actually interviewed the judges 
I suppose you cannot do that, but anyways, uh, you know, over a drink or something, ask, but you know, what exactly motivated your decision? I doubt that many of the judges, even on the Euro European Human Rights Court, would actually, would have actually given that reasoning, saying, we believe that we have this role in the world, we believe that we are collectively the guarantors of the implementation of all human rights instruments. India fails, we come to the rescue. It doesn't matter that Mr. Shahal is a risk. Maybe. Um, I suggest that we can also look for something which is probably more mundane, uh, but I think a very strong, in my view, moral impulse that would also have prevented the deportation of Mr. Shahal or that would have convinced the men on the street and here I mean me, you know, most, many, much of this work is actually introspection. I just look at what I would feel or I feel. And I believe that self-righteousness really plays a role. What I mean is this. We have an abhorrence of torture. It is, it is stated in, in text of law, but basically that is what it represents. We have an abhorrence of torture. And this abhorrence elevates us in a way to the moral high ground. Not only do we not tolerate torture in our midst, but also we regard those who practice it or who condone it with the kind of outlook which a civilized community reserves to barbarians. You know. And that is actually one of the possible impulses behind a decision not to deport. The fact that we may accept that our own immigration rules be bent in order to protect an otherwise undesirable stranger from being subjected to torture abroad. In my view, there's a very strong holier-than-thou attitude in this, a lot of self-righteousness. It may not be the only explanation, but I think it is a powerful one. Now, what to make of that paradigm? It exists, and of course, I, I'm happy that it exists. Uh, it, it's, it, it has an important role to play. How far can we push it? You see that in this diagram, I, I use the allegory of hell to signify that place to which we cannot send anyone, not even our worst moral enemy, without, with a clear conscience. We cannot do it. That's hell. Torture is certainly in most societies a defining element of hell. But what else is in hell? What do we make, for example, of inhuman or degrading treatment below the threshold of torture? Okay. Do we feel the same compulsion to stop the deportation of an illegal migrant who is almost sure to return to utter misery? And if we don't, why don't we? Isn't misery degrading? Isn't misery inhuman or both? This is the kind of dilemmas that we face. Human rights advocates will no doubt continue to push towards an, an, an expansion of these concepts. And we can expect at least some governments to push in the other direction. And the national and supranational courts, including those that interpret complementary protection criteria, will cautiously, I suppose, arbitrate this ethical contest. And in the process, they will redefine the boundaries of hell, as it were. There's no predicting how fast or how far or, for that matter, in which direction notions such as inhuman, degrading treatment or punishment would evolve. Members of the judiciary, I think, are well aware of the deep moral implications of their reasons. 
not least in the asylum field, albeit that they seldom make those explicit. So at the end of the day, I think that the answers will be found in what we citizens believe is just, but also in how much injustice we prepare to tolerate in the name of other essential components of our moral and social identities. I'll leave it at that. about the different ways you can stay updated and engaged with the work of the Refugee Study Centre, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk forward slash connect.